ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. About to share this episode thanks to these fine companies I depend on in the field. Game Changer Calls. The GC was designed with all hunting callers in mind. Though elk is the intended target, the unique size is a game-changing tool for turkey and coyote callers as well. It is not designed to replace your tube or open reads, but rather to complement the caller's repertoire in the field. Vortex Optics. Proudly made in the USA, Hoffman Boots. If you're heading to the backcountry and you need some meals that won't bog you down, check out SasquatchFuel.com. 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head over to SasquatchFuel.com. Titanium Archery Products. Dedicated archers deserve truly unique products that provide all the performance attributes that they demand, and that's exactly what TAP delivers. For more brands we run and trust, jump on westerncontours.com partners page. Look for the code Western Contours and save a few dollars off your order. Hey guys, this is a republish of an episode I did with Ron White, owner and chief instructor of DR Long Range Concepts. With our long range giveaway running, I wanted to give everyone a chance to uh, hear a little bit more about Ron if you didn't catch it the first time and what DR has to offer. Enjoy the episode. So we're on with Ron White. Ron, good evening, man. I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you for uh, sitting down with me to give us uh, your story and outdoor life and shooting and et cetera, et cetera, man. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I appreciate you and honored to be on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't you give us uh, an intro, man? Just uh, take it away. Give us some background. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm in Northwest Arkansas area and, uh, wife Denise and, and three children, 16, 18 and 23. Um, so we're learning a lot about raising, you know, teenagers. And, um, I grew up hunting and, and shooting, um, at a young age, um, 
I started into um, 4-H shooting sports, which was phenomenal. And um, and later in life, if possibly we talk about that later, but later in life, Denise and I were instructors for 4-H shooting sports, and our children grew up in that. Um, it's it's a phenomenal thing teaching respect and and safety, obviously. Um, safety number one. But, um, you know, during that time when I was a kid growing up in small bore, uh, 22 and, uh, four, you know, three and four position shooting, it was, um, I got burned out and it was, it was really a sad thing. I was becoming pretty talented and, um, and my dad was, he, he taught me so much about, the outdoors and hunting and we were big deer hunters my whole life killed my first year when I was nine and and uh you know we were feeding the family it was good stuff and and um so I got burned out and that was a really sad thing and um so that was later like around high school when I got burned out of of shooting and um not plinking I got burned out of competition shooting so um graduated from high school and um i started uh shoeing horses when i was 14 and and um you know i was a worker and and 16 i started training horses breaking horses and and uh so i had this dream i wanted to go out west and and uh, i absolutely love it out west i still do um we're just it's like a magnet, man. It, it continues to pull on our heart and soul. And, and uh, <laughs> Has that allure. you know, absolutely. And, and so, um, and I hear that amongst all of your folks in your podcast, you've, and you've done a great job too, man. I, I really want to commend you. Thank you very much. For, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I told you just before the intro, Nate, Kristen, Luke, I mean, there's been so many good real solid, um, um, discussions. I really appreciate it. You know, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate we, that. We all man. need to hear this. There's some, yep. there's some phenomenal people, man, in this, uh, in this community of ours. And I'm going to keep kicking that can down that road as long as I can, man. Good for you. <laughs> Long as it doesn't start feeling like work, we're okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I get it. Yeah. Totally understand. Um, so, Eight days after I graduated, um, you know, I had some opportunities with ROTC and and um, had a scholarship, man, and, and uh, ROTC scholarship there in high school, and I gave it back when I was presented. You know, I, I gave it back to my commander, and I said, "Listen, I want you to give this to someone that will utilize it." I have a plan, you know, and, and this is not my plan. So that was a big deal. And my dad held that. I mean, he was not real happy with that, uh, that decision, but, um, eight days after I graduated, I headed out West. I had a, had a job with an outfitter and, um, I was going to be a Wrangler, you know, and I, and, um, I'll never forget my dad. He said, have you talked to him about horseshoeing? I mean, are you going to, have you already discussed that? And I said, no, dad, I'll, I'll discuss it when I get out there. And, uh, he said, well, I think you should discuss that before you get out there. He had 28 head of horses and mules. And I was, I was shooing his horses and making $125 a week. 
you know, um, really, really tough work. And, uh, so it was, it was awesome. It was a great experience. Um, I learned to listen to my dad, you know, a little better at that point. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, typically you're making $25 back at that time, $25 a head when you're shooting these horses. And I get out there and it's, it's part of my weekly wage amongst everything else, you know, it's, it's pretty tough. But, um, so I worked for Tony Outfitters, a guy by the name of Ed Wiseman. Um, he's a historical figure, really. He was the last guy in, in Colorado to be mauled by a grizzly bear. Oh, wow. And, um, I tell you what, man, listening to that story, just below, uh, just below tree line at night with the, around the campfire. It's an amazing story, but, uh, he killed that bear with a, uh, arrow in his hand. Yeah. Look him up. It's a, it's a really cool story. Yeah. I'm going to have um, to check that one. out. Oh yeah. Ed Wiseman. Yep. But, um, he was a very, very tough man to work for. And, and I learned a ton from Ed. But, um, anyway, um, fast forward a bit. I got Giardia was sick as a dog, um, drinking mountain water. And, um, I'm assuming that's what it was and came home real sick. And anyway, that was the end of my outfitter career at that point. Um, I really did enjoy it. had a lot of big responsibilities at the time, but, um, came home and started training horses and, and, uh, and shoeing again. And so the Gulf war started brewing desert, desert storm started kicking off. And, um, I noticed a lot of my high school buddies were gone. You know, they were joining up in the military and, and, um, hit me like a ton of bricks, man. It was my turn. And, uh, so I went and signed up and I'd always wanted to be an army ranger. And, uh, so I talked to my old ROTC commander. He was an army ranger in Vietnam era and, and he talked me out of it, believe it or not. And, uh, I, I listened to him and, um, I went in the air force and it was a great decision. It was a great decision. I, you know, I've trained with a lot of army rangers since then and they're awesome people, super, super tough mentality. And, and, uh, physically they cannot be broken. And, uh, but, uh, the air force had this little, um, little sliver of uh, a small sliver of, I guess you could say the infantry of the air force. And that was at the time it was called security police. And, um, so I found myself at pretty early age, 19 as a nuclear weapons security specialist, um, huge responsibilities and, uh, grew up really quick. So, um, anyway, I mean, we, we utilized a lot of different weapon systems and, and, uh, great stuff so um during that time um my mom had had ms uh, multiple sclerosis for a long time and and um she started really getting ill and uh, it's amazing what happens i think as you hear this story just like your story and everyone else's stories these these doors just continue to open and doors close you know, God works in mysterious ways. And, um, so 
you know, my dad called and he said, listen, you know, I really need you back here. I was the only child. And, uh, he said, I need you back here. And, uh, is there any way you can transfer? And so I started trying to do a humanitarian transfer and all this to, to Arkansas. And, uh, nobody wanted to trade for West Texas for some reason. And so, um, at the, at, at the end of the, end of the ropes, I mean, I absolutely loved what I was doing. Absolutely loved it. But you know, it's family, family first. Family first, yes, sir. And, um, yeah, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like, I've got to do this. So, um, I had an opportunity. My first sergeant came down and said, look, there's another option. We can't find a trade for you to move you to Arkansas to a base in Arkansas, but we can transfer you to the national guard. And, uh, that I did not like the sound of that at all. You know, when you're active duty pipeline kid, national guard, just to be honest with you, it sounds weak, you know, just seems weak, but best decision I ever made in my life. Um, truly it was a door that opened for a reason. So, um, you know, I, I transitioned to the national guard and, uh, it's a phenomenal decision. Had no idea what it was all about, but these guys stay together. Um, when you're in active duty, you meet someone and they're gone in six months. When you're in the national guard, you train with these people every, you know, you, you train with them in different schools. Um, different uh, regional training sites, preparing for war, and you never separate. You know, 15 years later, you're with the same guys. Yeah. So it's super strong, high-integrity group of people. And, uh, you know, they obviously in the military, we give each other, uh, you know, a lot of crap back and forth. Um, But uh, we can do that to each other. You know, and it's cool. So anyway, we, um, I'll fast forward that a bit. That's where all these opportunities started dropping. I went to Army Mountain Warfare School. Um, and really, you think about this. I missed, I missed Desert Storm when I was in, I forgot to tell you that. I was in basic training. And, and uh, by the time um, basic training was over, Desert Storm was over. And so I thought, what in the world, you know, what am I going to do? Um, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So, um, so I was still a security policeman and they, they changed the name to security forces at, at one point. And, uh, um, it's a really big career field. You'll do everything from guarding the president to air force one to nuclear weapons security. It's a, it's a huge responsibility. So, um, Went to Mountain Warfare School, Army Mountain Warfare School, summer phase, and then winter phase a few a couple of years later. Phenomenal opportunity, rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, you know, all that good stuff. And and um, um, that's an opportunity I'd never had before. And I always wanted to go to sniper school. And um, I'd been denied sniper school because of funding a couple of times. And and uh, that's when I got those opportunities to go to mountain school like the very next year. But I finally got a slot to sniper school. That was a life changer. That was when it changed. I found my spot. And, um, 
the Air Force in the in the nineties, um, there was a group of Marines. Um, these group of Marines had had transitioned over to the Air Force, and they're wearing an Air Force uniform, and they're in the Air National Guard, and uh, they went to D.C. and put together this um, proposal for the Air Force um, to start a sniper program. Is very much needed for VIP protection, Overwatch, and uh, whatnot. And keeping in mind, we're still in the Cold War here during this time period. This is all prior to 9-11. 9-11 is another huge game change. We'll get there in just a second. But um, so they put together this program. It was put together by Marine Scout snipers. Um, Phenomenal. I've got the highest, utmost respect for those folks. And um, my first two mentors were Marines. One was a Vietnam sniper, and then the other was a, a Desert Storm sniper and, and uh, instructor from Quantico. But uh, so the program was put together. And um, I came through the school. I'd already been on the, the National Guard rifle team for some time learning, you know, and I started to. Remember, I'd been burned out at one point, and I started to love it again and uh, have that drive for competition and pushing myself to another level. So sniper school was a game changer, and when I graduated, the last person I saw was the uh, master sergeant that was running the school, and he said, I would like to have you back as, a, as an instructor. And then the, the rest is history at that point. You know, I definitely took him up on that and came back as a junior instructor and took on every class I could, learned as much as I could, and uh, started teaching at the school. It was amazing. So, yeah, so amazing. there's a lot of diversity, right, going going uh, from the Air Force to the National Guard, you know, kind of feeling yes. like you missed your calling with Desert Storm. But one thing, not one right. thing, and excuse me for saying it like that. Um, well, before I go any further, thank you for your service. Uh, I appreciate it. Oh, but the but something stood out to me, you. right, that, that I think we can all relate to. And you said you found your spot. Well, you found your spot through all that diversity, right? Um, you know, right. opting to go head out west to shoe horses, you know, then, then getting in the Air Force there, um, you know, turning down the Ranger thing and then hitting the National Guard. So there's some importance in that, right? Because, I mean, what we do, what we, you know, we're out here doing, you know, as outdoorsmen, as hunters, um, that's really where we find the passion and the love for it is through all that diversity, right? So why don't you give us something, Absolutely. you know, just give us a little bit on, on you know, finding it through diversity, man. Give us your, your take on that and the importance of that and the outlook, you know, for all yeah. of us. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, you think about the wider, the wider your stance is, the wider your base, the wider your foundation. You know, that's, that's important. And, um, that certainly was not my plan to have that wide of a foundation, but it has served me greatly. And, um, and another thing, each one of those time periods were a choice. And that's something we're all learning as we go, even in adult life, you know, I, my son had two job opportunities just the other day and uh, he was really perplexed 
you know, here he is an 18 year old and a couple of job opportunities. I said, look, pray about it and make the choice that's best for you. You know, and I tried, it was so hard not to be the dad that says, this is what you need to do. You know, um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just tell him, this is the way I would go, you know? And I didn't. I said, no, man, you got this. This is a decision you have to make. And so he made it and he made an awesome decision. So he's well on his way. Did he make the decision that you were going to recommend? Absolutely. There it is. That's why it was the right decision. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, I told him I was so proud of him, you know, and, uh, you know, he's had to make some pretty tough decisions just like my daughters have and, um, along the way, but <clears throat> that was a, that was a big one. There was one that it, it was like deciding between one that you, that was more fun. And then one that was better for positioning him in the future. And that's, you know, that's a rough that's call for an 18 year old right there, man. Absolutely. man. You know, looking at it that, is. trying to fight off that fun man in that, in that late stage of adolescence there. Right. I mean, that's uh, that's a big deal, man. So, uh, Ed Wiseman. Yes. That is, that's insane. So as, as we're going here, I pulled it up right as you said it. Um, yep. man, he's, he, he picked up an arrow as the bear was chewing on him, uh, his shoulder yes, and stabbed the bear in the jugular. Uh, and then once under the armpit and it walked about 25 yards. So he tried to play possum apparently, and that wasn't working. And he figured he better do something before it, uh, before it killed him. The year fourteen miles yep. in the back country, he had to get out. That's right. At night, wow. That's right. And a and a horse a horse named Freckles saved his life. Mm-hmm. That's something else. And that man. horse was that horse was still alive when I was there, um, working for him. And that horse never had a saddle on it. He let that horse go. When we started at the trailhead, that horse was free. And all the other horses, you know, I might have like five mules in the train and he would have some mules or whatever. And um, that horse went loose. And but that horse guided this, this the hunter. The hunter was our tree hunter. And he came back. He heard this ruckus and he came back. This guy's dad was a doctor, a physician. And anyway, he came back to, to hear what this screaming and roaring was i can only imagine what it would sound like but and he found ed there and uh you know this if i remember right it seemed like the grizzly died on top of it but maybe not no it's it says uh soon to be dead bear walked off about 25 25 yards laid down and put her head on her front paws okay i got you i couldn't remember but he was in really bad shape bleeding out and um and i've seen ed just in shorts and the you know a long time ago i mean i was 19 i'm almost 50 now so um this was a long time ago but he had those muscle dents where where the scars were you know he, he's a tough a tough dude oh no yeah. yeah oh yeah i'm looking at this aluminum arrow with this uh fixed two blade on it that he stabbed that bear yeah. with man it's a tough sob yeah. he's an amazing amazing guy to work for no doubt. He was extremely tough, extremely tough. And, um, but I learned, a, I learned a lot from that. Yeah. I'm really to, looks like he has a book too, man. Grizzly attack. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna yeah. have to look at that. Yeah. When I, when I was out there, 
that authors would come by and um, they were talking about making a movie at some point. I would love that. It would be awesome. Yeah, hand-to-hand combat with a bear, man. Who a grizzly of all bears, right? Yeah. What's no up? With, what's what's the deal with Colorado, man? Guys killing grizzlies. We had the guy recently, what a month or so ago, uh, kill a mountain lion with his bare hands. Right. <laughs> I don't know about messing with anybody in Colorado. Yeah, that's right. Some tough souls, I guess. Oh, goodness, man. It's good stuff. So yeah. let's uh, jump into your hunting life, man. Why don't you give us a little bit about yeah. your hunting and outdoor life? Yeah, right on. And um, so we're big deer hunters every year. My kids have grown up deer hunting. Started them off harvesting uh, does. You know, I, I always felt like they needed to um, become extremely proficient with their rifle. And, um, you know, obviously that's the background and, and, um, um, and, and ethical, you know, it needs to be one shot, one and done. And, uh, so, um, bullet placement, you know, that education over time and, and, uh, so I'm not out here tracking animals and, and we don't want them to, to suffer ever. So, they, they learned a lot and um, my son has, has taken a, a lot of whitetail and um, and then he's, he's got the biggest whitetail in the house and I you know what's funny about me is I never tape antlers I don't measure the antlers the, the only set of antlers I've measured was my wife uh, her mule deer from uh, 2016 we did the desert mule deer hunt and I taped that one and um but i've I've never taped any of my antlers it's just i hunt for a purpose and it's not for the antlers the antlers are bonus you know so taught them right and and um denise hunts she's a big hunter and if, if i'm not ready in the morning and we're in kansas or wherever we're at if i'm not ready she's gone she's like, <laughs> hey, you. love you yeah love you she puts her headlamp on and I'll see you about one, you know, she takes off. So, um, but when I met her, um, when we met 25 years ago, she had never shot a gun or any of that. So it's, this has been an awesome journey with my family. There's no doubt about it. It's awesome. It's so important to share that man and cherish that. And, it is for the sure. stuff we learn together out there, you know, chasing that. I mean, and I say that, right. Chasing animals. Um, and this is another, you know, kicking this can down the road, but, um, just that time and the values in that time, man, just, you know, being out away from everything, just in nature, uh, it's, it's like no other, it's like no other. I mean, there's special times, but man, I, I don't know for me, it doesn't compare to that. Not much that, no, uh, no, not much that beats it. Same here, man. It's, I, I think we need it, you know, and you and I talked just before about something that happens to us, you know, we're maybe our life is softening, softening us up a bit. And, uh, you know, we need this challenge. We need to get out. We need to live. We need, I've heard you mention tribe, you know, we, we need our tribe and, uh, we're hunters and gatherers. That's what we are. Yeah. That's it, man. And, yeah. And, and, but society is bringing us to this soft place and, and it's not good. So everyone I've heard on your podcast is unique to that. 
we're we're all hunters of some of some type. We all love to get out west when we can, and life is busy, you know. But we do everything we can. In 2018, um, we skipped 2018. It was a sacrifice year. My wife had both knees replaced in two different time periods in 2018. So that was a really tough year for her, but she did not draw successfully in Wyoming. And so as soon as I gave her those results, she said, you know what, let's get my knees replaced this year. And she's a tough cookie. And um, so that's what she did. And now we go to Colorado this year and, and then we go to Wyoming for my tag the next year. Nice. Yeah, that's a... Yeah. I'll be in Colorado this year. I can't wait. Awesome. I can't either. I'll be spotting for her. It'll be awesome. And I don't care. I don't care if I'm hunting or just there with the spotting scope. I'm good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you guys chasing elk? You chasing deer? Elk. Absolutely. Elk. Love elk hunting. And we take groups out. Um from our um, our alumni, our course course participants, course course graduates, um, we take groups out west, just about every year or every other year. And um, 2017, I was going to tell you this real quick. Um, my um, son killed his first bull in 2017. He and I both had a tag, and uh, so when you talk about highs and lows. There were no lows on that trip. Yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, two tags punch. Now that's which. Uh, that's your boy. That uh, the eighteen-year-old. That's right. That's right. So he was what sixteen, sixteen and a half at that time. So he he killed a, a bull. But it, what was funny about this trip is, um, so we had five days, and I did not punch a tag during that trip. But, but like I say, there were no, there were no lows, you know, he, he, he and I both had tags, but so the first three days he passed like 11 bulls. And I said, no, I said, look, you know, this is cool. If you're going to trophy hunt, that's awesome. But you need to let me know before, you know, before the bull gets out of position because we only have five days, Mm -hmm. you know, just, just let me know and I'll jump on the rifle and you can spot for me, you know? So we can bring some meat home. You can trophy hunt all five days. That's fine. But I saw something in him. You know, it was it was really cool to see that maturity. He was he he wanted the right bull. Yeah, he's better than me. It was awesome. <laughs> better than me. Yeah, he's better than me too. <laughs> Absolutely. And he's been bow bow hunting, and I think the bow hunting has really given him some patience. You know, he loves bow hunting. Yeah, it's uh. There's definitely something, something uh, way more intimate, man, about you know getting, getting close to whatever animal it is, you know. Um, right. Just something about that bow that has that draw, man. I love it. Right on. So, what was his shot distance on that bull he took? Well, this is, you know, this is one of those moments where, um, you know, when I say this, we we get feedback, you know, but. We'll have conversation out of out of it, but exactly. it was a thousand and twenty. Yeah, a thousand and twenty-eight yards. Yeah. Eighteen years old, a thousand twenty-eight yards. 
Yeah. He was like 16 and a half, almost 17, I guess. Man. But um, he's been, you know, he shot a thousand yards when he was 10. You know, he's been in this life. Um, he's one of our instructors. And, and so we have this rule when we go out West, I mean, we are training hard. Um, when it comes to range time, you know, I mean, we're, we're shooting targets at, at um, all sorts of distances and, and, you know, a, a lot of times people will cheat that. They'll, they'll start at a hundred and run all the way out to the pouch, you know? And, but really the best, one of the best tests is, is drive up to the range and, and plop out on the ground and, and find a log to shoot off of or something, a natural prop that's realistic. Um, so you get out West, you typically cannot lay on your belly. So you're having to get above prone shooting position and in the wind, you know, the wind is, is always a variable. It's changing all the time. So mastering that wind and, and, um, taking that shot. So I had no, no doubt, no doubt. And we, we did a train up. So typically when we go on these group hunts, this was a group hunt with other hunters as well. I think there was eight of us and, um, he and I hunted together and the other ones went with other guides, but, um, we had leased a ranch, like a 6,000 acre ranch. Um, and we did an extreme long range hunter course for one day and, um, half, half a day, um, shooting and then half a day on horses and we would stop. Um, and they got to meet their guide, you know, and their guides got to see their potential, which is so important. Oh yeah. The guides absolutely loved it. They knew what these hunters were capable of, you know, and, um, we shot out to 13, 1400 yards during the training. And <clears throat> what's awesome is I asked every one of the, the, uh, participants there, what's your number? And that was day one in the morning. What's your number? And they would say 400, 500 yards by the end of the training, the confidence level had gone up so much but most of them were 700 where, you know, 700 was kind of a max number mm-hmm. and, uh, you just never know what you're going to get into out there. That's a poke, man. Yep. That is a poke. So, so 13 to 1400 yards. So a thousand twenty eight yards is a chip shot. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, it's definitely not a chip shot. Definitely not a chip shot. That is, that's something else. But man. you think about that, you know, if we put that in archery perspective, and this is what I like to do. Um, I like to keep those conversations real calm, like with an archery hunter. Um, when it comes to that, because that, that almost, I mean, that can offend certain people. I mean, it really can. So I'm real careful. I don't go around bragging about those numbers. I, I don't, I don't want to brag about anything, but especially a distance. Um, they have no idea the preparation that went in for that. And it's just like a, you know, archery hunter shooting 80 yards to a hundred yards. Right. You know, it's that, that individual prepared for that shot over and over and over again. Well, so, so you, you brought so, something up there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You brought something no, up no. there, right? So, and you've heard the podcast, right? So if a guy is, if that's within, well within his capability and he's comfortable and it's an ethical shot, right? Um, 
the understanding of what's going to happen to that bullet the best we can uh, in time and space, traveling that type of distance, right? That's all learned information. Um, and like you said, it, it, it takes tons of practice and preparation. Why should we be questioning whether or not that that's a shot? Now, if a guy is saying, hey, 700 yards is my max, and he lays down prone or above prone to take a 1,028-yard shot, then I can see there's some discussion there, right? And then you hear it in archery right. a lot, right? You, they, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, it's a broad stroke, but, you know, and I've said it in a, a few podcasts, but 40 yards. Now, is 40 yards, you know, where I feel like my effective range is? No. I think 40 yards stems from older technology, Um you know, to me, I want to get with, especially with the elk, I want that up close and personal relationship with them. Um, but if you're talking black tail or mule deer, I have no problem with taking a 70 yard poke, um, knowing that I'm going to hit my mark, you know, I, right. I, you know, it's, it's, again, it's preparation. So I, I don't know, man, a thousand twenty eight yards, I'd be holding my head up pretty tall, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> so all no, that. Yeah, it's, it's for sure. It, it, we, we try to keep it quiet. Really? Yeah, we really do. And I, I caution all of the hunters that go in our groups. Yeah, I mean, you know, some guys, they'll um, harvest their animal at 300 yards. You just never know what you're going to get into. We, don't, we do not go out there wanting to shoot a bull at 1,000 yards. Right. That is not the goal ever. It's never the goal. It's the situation we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, um, Denise has the record in the house. And, um, you know, she's she's killed a nice bull at, at a, at a distance. And, and, um, you know, I've killed a bull at a distance and then Hunter killed a bull at a distance. And it's, it, but each one of those situations, it would have taken hours for me to get closer. Not that, you know, um, but the, the position we were in high on this Ridge, big Valley beneath with the river and, and he's high up on that side on horseback after the shot, it was like a two hour ride to, to get to the bull. This is, this takes a lot of responsibility to do this. It's a big, big decision. And, um, and certainly when we get to ethics, we can talk a lot about that. I was going to say, so there's two things right there, right? You, Ron, you're not going to sit here on my podcast and worry about being judged and just and just say, Denise shot one at distance. I shot one at distance. I want to know what the distance is. One. Sure. <laughs> and, two, sure. Sure. And, and two, let's just start talking about the long range ethics, right? And, and so everyone understands the background. Um, all we're going to do at the moment is say, this is Ron White with DR Long Range Concepts, right? Um, instructor, um, you know, military trained, um, and in, uh, military instructor. So let's talk about first, tell me the distances and then let's go into ethics. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, uh, Denise was a thousand ninety six. Um, and if she was standing there, she would probably correct me. It, it, you know, she, she definitely wants me to say the right number. You know, she remembers. Um, but I believe that that is correct. 1,096. And I was laying right there, spotting through my rifle scope. And, um, and a matter of fact, on that one, that it, I've got it on video. Um, but I don't like to put the video up, to be honest with you. I don't. Um, I really don't. So... Um, I put it up on our alumni page just for alumni only, and then I took it down. Something hit me, and I was like, you know what? We we just 
we just need to move on. But in 1096, the guide says, uh, and this is an outfitter we had been going to for like four years in a row. He knew us extremely well. And he saw us train. We used his horses in the training. Um, and uh, it, he said, listen, I need a backup shot on this bull. And I said, okay, you want it right after she shoots? And, and he says, no, at the same time. I saw her trace, her bullet trace, in the middle of the air when I pulled the trigger. I gave it like, like a, a quarter of a second, and then I pulled the trigger. We both shot that bull. And the reason we did, he asked us to for a reason. Um, she shot him first, and then, and then my bullet was there right after. I saw her impact, and, and then I saw my impact. And uh, so we both hit this bull, and um, 20 yards, and he was done. If he would have gone another 50 yards downhill, 60 yards downhill mm -hmm. he said ron it'll take us days to get him out of there it's nasty so it was right on the edge right on the edge he said i want a backup shot i said no problem and uh, so that's what we did um mine was a thousand fifty eight um uh, nice bull and when i say nice bulls uh, this part of wyoming it's it was south of jackson area um this part of Wyoming is, you know, the biggest bull we've taken out of there was a, was a stud. It was a 340. That was um, two years ago. One of the guys we took, that was the biggest bull this outfitter had ever taken. Mine was close to 300. Denise's was like a probably 270, somewhere in there, and probably about the same as Honors. Just for us, that's a trophy. You know, mm -hmm. that's a unique trophy. Oh yeah, proud to take it. Yeah, and and we have so much love for these animals. Um, and I, I know you respect the fact that I'm quiet about that distance, um, but I, I'm certainly not afraid to talk about it. I, I think it's good that we we approach that and we look at it in perspective. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely that right. Time that time of preparation. I'm not going to take it away from anyone if they take a bow shot at, at 100 yards, and and I would expect the same. They have no idea the amount of time preparation and how well we understand our rifle. The variables, though, are wind. You know, wind is different in every topographical area. It's it flows differently, and um, we could certainly talk about wind as we go too. Yeah. What, what's crazy to me about a shot like that, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're using a little wind meter, right, it's, it's getting you right there at, you know, at the, at the tip of that bore or that muzzle. And right. by the time it's a hundred yards out, man, that wind is doing something different. And, you know, at 1100 yards, it's a different, you might as well be in a different time zone. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? So that, that's fascinating to me. And, and, I really I enjoy that when I watch aerial flight, right? I'm I'm just absolutely fascinated, you know, with that aerial travel, you know, out past like 80 yards and and to see what what time and space does to flight and how you can still be accurate with with no again knowing your equipment and it's just man, it's it's fascinating, but 1100 yards, man. I mean, that's 
that's an impressive poke. Absolutely impressive poke. I hope to one day think about it, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no. I was just going to say, I hope one day, man, I'm shooting about half that distance (laughs) real good. I'll be okay. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I would love it. If you were closer or if you ever get here, Please come see us for oh, sure. Yeah, for I sure, would love man. to get you out there, man. Yeah, awesome. 1100 yards. That's man. I, you know what? I, there's no way I could be quiet about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. I understand. So long range ethics, man. Um, why don't you give us a little bit, you know, on that? I mean, there's some decision making that is kind of atypical when you start looking at, you know, long range versus, you know, the average. What do you call an average shot? Right. I'm going to say I'm going to say within, you know, 400 yards, I would consider an average shot. Um, sure. But there's some decision making that comes along with being able to shoot out, you know, a thousand yards. So why don't you give us some some big pointers or, or your view on that. Yeah, absolutely. So you're exactly right. Each, each person has their limit. They have their limit. And then when they get out there, the adrenaline starts to flow and the guides have seen their, what they can do. Um, and, and typically we hunt with guides. We don't have the amount of time to go, um, it, you know, typically we're five days, and after we travel home, I'm right back in the office. You know, we have to get back to work. So it is what it is. And um, I would love to go out there and do a do a hunt with Luke, you know. I, and I did talk to him on the phone at, about that. I said, man, I would love to hunt with you. I love his mentality. And um, it's awesome. But um, anyway, but when, you, when you're there, that adrenaline hits. And, um, you know, I remember mine, I was on the side of a hill and he, the the bull was about the same height as I was on the other side. Um, but he was, you know, forward down the, down the ravine, um, you know, a ways we had a four by four beneath us about 500 yards, uh, bugling. I mean, he's so exciting. And, um, but this bull, we had seen him the night before and we came in for him. And, uh, this is the position we, we thought he might be a little closer. I, I kept telling the guy that really wanted, I said, 800 yards and in it's solid. It's a done deal unless the wind is too high and I'll let you know, but, and then I'll, I'll pull out, you know, we'll work him and get closer. But, um, that I was on the, the side of a hill so the position was extremely tough uh, to get into. And I did not have a lot of time, probably two minutes um, to get set up and, and um, check the wind. And, and, you know, the way, the way I look at wind is, and really that's the, one of the biggest decisions to make at that moment is wind. If there's any doubt on the wind call, that's a great way to wound an animal with a bad wind call. Um, it's a huge decision right then. And so um, I looked at the wind about four different times. I looked at Mirage where the bull was. Um, obviously I could feel the wind where I was in between. It's very difficult because you know, you're what 600, 600 feet above the ground, right? you know, as bullet flies over that Valley or, or more, maybe it's 800 feet. 
it was a pretty steep valley, but, um, that if you think about it, typically the wind is going to be relatively the same at your height. It's at, it follows, it follows the lay of the land and it's friction as it touches the ground or touches trees and rocks. That is friction on the earth. It flows like water. I like to look at wind like a river. It's water coming through a river. And here's God made this river. There's your riverbank. You've got that left valley, right valley. Um, any cuts in the topography are going to cause um, this eddy, uh, swirl, a wind swirl. Um, it, you know, it, it's it's nice when you're, we're different. We're a different breed. And archers are too. Archers are too. They're always paying attention to wind um, because they're going to get close to the animal. We're paying attention to wind for that for that as well but um we're paying attention to wind velocity and we're always running through these wind formulas in our mind um as we cross this terrain and we're memorizing how wind was affected in this saddle you know you come over a hill and it starts to blow your hat off at the top of the hill that's a wind compression coming up that up that front of that of that hill on the backside of that hill, there's going to be an eddy there and wind swirling, and it's going to be much slower velocity on the backside of the hill. It's a, it's an awesome study. But the ethics of that uh, truly starts in your preparation, in my mind. If you have not prepared for that shot um, and your confidence level is not there, something you had said when we first met you're going to pull the plug, you know, and that's, that's your internal decision to pull the plug. And I've pulled the plug many times. And, and, uh, that year, my, my boy killed his bull. I pulled the plug on a humongous five by five. He was a stud five by five. And, um, the tails on this thing were just humongous. He was 1300 yards and it was, it was getting dark. Um, light was starting to go down and, and the guy kind of looked at me and smiled and, and I said, no way, no way. Let's come back and get him in the morning. And so we paid close attention to him and there was no way we could get in position. He was on the move and, uh, before dark. So we just watched him and, and kind of put him to bed. And then that next morning we came in Well, we came in with one of my other buddies as well and another guy he went up one ridge, we went up another ridge, and he actually um, got a shot at this bull, and he missed him. He didn't hit him, didn't wound him, he missed him. And uh, he was sick. He was sick. He almost quit the hunt. He was so sick about it. This guy's a tremendous shooter, tremendous shooter. And um, I had to coach him pretty hard that night. Um, he was sick for one reason. He said, that was your bull. You should you you saw that bull. You should have been able to hunt that bull. I said, "Look, man, you're my friend. You know, nothing better than to see you harvest that bull." Um, the other reason is because he missed him. He just didn't have the amount of time, and he said, "I should have pulled out. I should not have shot." And so he learned a valuable lesson. Most of these people we take, it's their first time elk hunting. 
Oh, so they're up against yeah, it. They may be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First time elk hunting. Yeah. It was awesome. So anyway, he almost quit that night. And uh, I said, brother, don't quit. He killed a 340 the next day. Ooh, That's the guy. There you go. Yep. And 400 yards, one shot, done deal. He was so proud. And the hug we gave each other when I saw him, it was, it was amazing. And I said, brother, I'm so glad you didn't quit. But he was sick. You know, he was sick about missing that boy. He was so glad he didn't wound him. But that's what we have to live with if we make the wrong call. If we wound an animal, I can't live with wounding the animal and watching him walk away. That that would uh, that hurt my soul. Yeah, so, that's a rough I mean, one. Something that it's, it's a huge responsibility mm-hmm. to make this decision. So, when preparation, when to pull out, what else we got in there? So we have to consider the bull's location, and um, are we going to be able to? Uh, find this this animal and bring our game out. So um, it, one thing about long range is <clears throat> marking your location where you're at with GPS or or uh, a good location marker, and then um, marking the location where you shot the animal. A lot of times we're in high sage, tall grass. Um, it, it's that would be a nightmare to lose an animal of a lifetime after, you know, the effort you've put in on locating such animals. So, um, I think that's a huge thing we should mention about ethics. Yeah, definitely. Right. Cause that, I mean, that lends itself. Well, you just said it, but the recovery of that animal, right. I mean, I, I almost think that that's along the lines of wounding an animal and maybe worse, you know, is, is not, right. ha- not being able to recover that animal after that hit, man. After that fatal That's hit, right. so yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that one into it. So with that, right, I, I kind of felt it important to talk about ethics before we got into our our main topic here, um, and Absolutely. that is DR long range concepts. Why don't you give us some background on DR? And uh, yeah, it's all you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, and I'll back up just a second. After after nine eleven, I, I kind of told you earlier, things the, the first ten years was of, of my military career were Cold War. After nine eleven, everything changed, and we were active active duty, and we started deploying. Two thousand two, we we were deploying and um, um, Kurdish Republic Afghanistan, and then um, Iraq in 07. So. The the experiences the experiences there um, were I mean it, there's no words but it's um, it it allowed you to um, to bring forward this this whole full circle full circle and um, so when I retired in in 2011. Um, I, I was um, still an instructor at the school, obviously, and and um, I just had to keep doing it, man. And it was a part of me, and I loved it. It was that passion part. I love teaching young 
studs how to go survive, you know, live. And, um, so this, this dream came about and, uh, DR long range was formed we formed an LLC and started teaching right away. I was scared to death to teach civilians at first. So, um, after several discussions with my mentor, one of my mentors and, um, he called me down and said, you're going to be okay. Um, but I, I was just scared of that liability mm-hmm. and I, I was truly nervous about how am I going to vet these people? You know, I had never had to vet anyone. These students came to me in the school and we trained them. Um, but this was different. And so that worry went away extremely quick. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, the type of people that come here and it's just word of mouth now. And, 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 uh, these are solid Americans. They're great people that are enthusiasts. Uh, some are military, um, any, any branch of the service. We've had all branches of the service come through and, and, uh, a lot of uh, local law enforcement SWAT snipers come through and, and, uh, from different states, four or five different states around the area. And um, absolutely love teaching those guys and giving them anything I can, any insight I can. It's like I owe it to them to just help them with their job and, and uh, help them survive potentially. Um, so this, this has been, this has been uh, um, a phenomenal journey and, and uh, it's like our church, man. When we get out there, it's so much more than shooting. We have these feedback sessions, and and uh, there's absolutely no ego allowed in our instructor staff. The, these instructors are amazing people. They're um, they're my best friends, and um, one of them I was in Iraq with, uh, Brian. He and I were partners, sniper partners in Iraq, and and. Uh, we're extremely close, extremely close, as you can imagine. And we know each each other's strengths. We know each other's weaknesses, and and um, and you know he's he's a big part of our advanced classes now. And um, the other instructors, a couple of them, a few of them are volunteers. They actually volunteer to instruct. Um, yeah, it's just an amazing thing. So. Um, these, these folks are, they invest in the student and that's the way it's gotta be, you know? And, and, um, something I I learned a long time ago, it's not necessarily what you teach the student. It's how you Um, make them feel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, we put it all out there and, and I'm, I'm very proud of, of what the instructors have done. And, and, uh, Denise is a huge part. She's a great instructor. Um, she has just grown and, and, uh, she really runs DR on a day-to-day basis. And then, um, I have a full-time career as well. So we're geared up and packed up. We go out tomorrow and, and, uh, for an advanced level two class this weekend. Nice. It's all good. These are lifelong friends. You know, after one weekend, it's 90% of them are lifelong friends after one weekend. It's just an amazing journey. So the, 
it's not what you teach them, but it's how you teach them and treat them. Um, to me, that that stands out, right? Because uh, long range shooting, man, it's pretty intimidating, right? You, you, it is. It, it, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's a lot of science. There's a lot of math. It's intimidating, man. So I can see that having a a big impact or being very impactful on a student, uh, especially with that intimidation factor, you know, with stretching those shots out. That's right. So what are some, give us some LR basics, man. What are the basics when you step up to the plate, say somebody wants to come to a, to a class, what are the basics? What are the, what's the bare minimum you need to roll up with the knowledge of what, what kind of equipment? What they need to come with is minimal. Truly. Um, now, equipment that they need to come with, and then I'll give you some basics into long range if that's kind of where you're going with that. Too. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, okay. Awesome. So when they come, we tell them, look, do not go out and spend a fortune. If, if we are fortunate enough to talk to them a couple of times before they come through the class, and, and typically Denise will talk to them a couple of times before they come through. And, uh, that's one of the first things we'll tell them is, you know, don't go out and, and break your budget on a new custom rifle and a new optic. Um, here's what you, you know, tell us what you have and then we'll tell you if that's going to work. And we, you know, we'd like for the rifle to be capable of, of a one to one and a half inch group at a hundred yards. Most rifles are capable of this. Um, you know, even store bought over the counter. Um, there's a lot of, you know, Remington SPS, you know, it's not a break the budget type of gun and Tika T3, you know, there's, there's quite a few of those that you can, you can, uh, that a lot, it's very popular mm-hmm. for folks, but, um, or we'll rent them a rifle, you know, for, uh, just a, a nominal price. Um, renting a rifle that's all set and ready to go. And then, um, you know, maybe we have the opportunity to build them a rifle down the road. We work with a, a rifle builder and, and, uh, build a couple of different designs for folks. So when they, when they come, um, and they, we get them into the class, we'll do an intro in this class. And I'll say it once again, it's so important. I want them to feel comfortable immediately as quickly as possible. I want to break the ice, get them feeling comfortable because you and I both know that how that is. If, if you're not comfortable and, and it's easy for you to hit a brick wall and you just stay there and you're not hearing a word, the instructor say it, we've all been there. So, um, we do this intro, we take some time, get to know each other and then rock and roll. And, um, so we press on and we start teaching um, the, the fundamentals, which I'll say two things about it. These are the basics of long range shooting. <clears throat> but this weekend in, in this advanced level two class, and then two weeks from now in the advanced level three class, fundamentals are more important than they were in level one. The application of perfect fundamentals are more important the higher level you go to master those fundamentals. You can cheat the fundamentals and still get by, but not when you get off the ground, when you get off your belly, you get away from prone 
and you're shooting off a tripod or off of a barricade or out of a window, um, you know, or, or a tank trap or a barrel, you're shooting on something else. The fundamentals apply, starting with um, number one would be stable position slash natural point of aim. Natural point of aim is humongous. And uh, stable position in any position we want to fire from, that's number one. Then we press on to aiming, eye relief, uh, sight, sight alignment, and sight picture. So the three phases of aiming. Eye relief really, you know, we'll spend um, an hour, an hour and a half setting up a, a, a person's rifle for them after we've taught the fundamentals in the class before we go to the 100-yard range. If their eye is not centered up with that optic, they're going to struggle. They're going to continue to struggle with what we've, in, I'm sure you've seen the black shadow in the scope. Oh, yeah. Right? Got to love the On parallax. The yeah. Parallax is no fun, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And parallax is definitely even another subject, but uh, we can talk about that too. But the, the black shadow, so if, you know, a lot of times these rifles will have a cheek piece that's adjustable in the, in the rear and it'll have a length to pull adjustment. This is crucial. This is a crucial part. If we don't set up the rifle perfectly before we go to the range, we're not setting this, this customer up for success right off the bat. So this is crucial. I want his eye or her eye to be elevated where the, the eye is centered with the, the optic. And um, so then we'll test it again and again and link the pull. If the link the pull is not correct, we'll have black shadow all the way around evenly inside just the outer edge inside the optic. And so you can scoot your face forward or scoot your face back to open that field of vision up and then change the, the length of the rifle. This, especially with youth, youth shooters or ladies or smaller adult males. Um, ladies are awesome shooters, by the way. Um, I think that was said on Kristen's podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 dude, I'm telling you, they're natural shooters. So anyway. I'm glad you're um, backing me up on that <laughs> statement, man, because I thought I was going to catch a little grief on it. <laughs> no way. No, I've seen it a lot. It's, yeah, they're natural. And I, I kind of joke about it a little bit too, but, um, um, you know, they're, well, one thing, when, when they miss a target, they fix their situation and hit the target. Where you and I, as, as males, we're worried about why we missed the target, you know? And so this ego potentially inside this alpha male is messing around, worrying about why we missed this target. Why the, the, the lady has already hit the target twice, you know, while we're talking about it. Yeah, so, short memory. Um, yeah, absolutely. The importance of a short memory, man. That's it. Natural shooters. So um, number three would be breathing. And there's a lot of, when we teach these fundamentals, this will take an hour and a half, typically hour and a half to, to go through. We've got a lot of tips and tricks that we've learned over the years and we've changed the, the course curriculum that I used to teach at sniper school. The, the base is still there, 
but so much has changed. This is a very exciting time to be in long range. The advancements are amazing. And um, so there's, there's a lot that I've learned that I wish I could go back and, and say, look, I think that we were teaching this the wrong way, you know? And uh, anyway, breathing is not one of those. Breathing is the same. And um, we, we like to fire with no air in our lungs. Um, that's, that's how we teach it. And that's how it was taught in sniper school. Pretty much uh, the same everywhere. No air in the lungs. We have a five to eight second respiratory pause. Depending on the style of sedentary lifestyle or our fitness level, that respiratory pause is different for every individual. But it's just like you and I talking here. We're not unnaturally holding our breath. It's just a small respiratory pause. That's when we pull the trigger. Which takes us to trigger control. There's a lot of tips and tricks on trigger control that we've learned over the years. And uh, very, very important. Most of the test, uh, written test in a, in a long range school, that would be the answer for the, uh, what's the most important, important fundamental trigger control is usually the test answer. But you know, the more I've thought about this and studied this, and obviously I'll be a lifelong study of long range. Um, my goal is to master it and to continue to master it. Um, and that's a lifelong journey. It's not something you, that's what's awesome about long range. There's so much, so many variables. These variables continue to change right in front of you. So it's, it's, it's always a problem to solve. And I love it. It's, it's a, it's a challenge every single time. So, um, but it's not super difficult. And, and I, I think if, if somebody out there's on the edge, they're wanting to get into long range shooting, they've never done it. They just need a mentor and then they'll be off, off to the races. It's not super difficult. Um, but there are a lot of variables, you know, obviously. And especially when we go into long range hunting, you know, stay in your, stay in your lane. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> That's the easiest yeah. way to go about that one, man. Yes, sir. And, and, you know, if your lane is 400 yards, so be it. Yeah. I know mine was the majority of my life. You know, yeah, and that and, 400 uh, yards and, and, can shorten up real quick when that adrenaline hits, and then, and you know, that those respirations are going up, and that heart is beating through your chest. Man, that 400 yards can shrink down, you know, 100, 150 yards. You're all over the yes, place, sir. absolutely, <laughs> especially with the right set of bone sitting in front of you. You know, we we all we yeah, all have right. been there, you know, it, it's absolutely, and that's why we continue on that journey, too. That excitement, that drive, it's awesome. So after after trigger control, one last is follow through and recoil management. Those really are hand in hand. Follow through and recoil management. Because we want to be able to see our impact on target. We've got to manage the recoil. And uh, so that's really the, the, the fundamentals of long-range marksmanship. And there's a, a lot to each one of those that certainly we don't have the time for at this point, but anytime in the future, we certainly could. So the, 
recoil management is important in in more respects than just seeing that shot or that impact, right? I mean, if you have to follow that, follow that shot up, if you're having to, you know, get back on scope or get back on target, um, that, that could mean the difference between, you know, that animal or, or not getting that animal. So that's, that's huge. Absolutely. And seeing the direction, you know, seeing the animal, uh, the direction the animal runs or falls. Um, that's why I, I stress seeing the impact. So we know if it was a little bit too far back or maybe in the shoulder and we need to put one double on. Um, you know, it, it's um, that's important. But what if he runs off um, and then there's another bull standing there? You know, I mean, that would be like my worst nightmare, but there's a lot to it. And especially at distance, it gets very confusing at distance. Yeah, I've heard that story too. You know, mm-hmm. shot one, didn't, you know, look back through and then, you know, thought I hit thought I hit it wasn't a bad hit put a second shot down there get over there and I got two dead animals I mean that's oh, uh, that's some trouble that is definitely oh, some I've trouble I've heard the story too yeah. that's huge yeah and so there was a one of those choices we had to make in our life you know and yeah that's a rough that one was man a bad choice yeah yep so yep. what are some misconceptions when it comes to long range shooting that that list is a lot longer than the basics. I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say you know the the one we've already talked about is the long range hunting is unethical, um, and that's you know this is one of those where uh, you know online is some of these forums online are the worst place to go to get advice or to to make a statement, and um, unfortunately because there's just so many. Uh, angry people out there and um, I just tell all the people stay off of these forums with don't go on the forums tell them your story unfortunately just come to our group that's fine you can tell your story and I'm going to protect you I'll ban them if they start you know I'm not going to put up with that so but you know um, what's I'm sorry I'm gonna cut you off you know what's funny about no, that is is why are we have to hide in the shadows why? Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you're putting in the you're putting in the time, you're putting in the energy, you're putting in the effort to to learn the science um, behind this shooting, right? To be able to practice that science and that arithmetic to be able to shoot like this, but somehow another hunter, right? Because I guarantee you that's what it is, has a problem with that or is not examining the time, effort, and energy, and wants to belittle it or say it's unethical. I mean, if it's, right. you know what I mean? That that drives me crazy, man. It, it just drives me crazy. It, it doesn't make any sense. So here we are, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I hunt rifle and I hunt archery. I'm not no long range guy, man. Uh, we're going to have to talk about all that. But um, yeah, that there's there's effort and energy and that the level that I put into it, man, I'm not going to I don't. I don't want to have to not talk, especially to 
a group of hunters and say, Hey, I took a, I took a, you know, a 80 yard poke, or I took, you know, if I was capable of it, a thousand yard poke, you know, laid this animal down and I, you know, I got the meat in the freezer and the bone on the wall. So what's the problem? Right now, if I say, hey, I was capable of, you know, a 500 yard shot and I took an 800 or 1000 yard shot, then, yeah, you know, give me give me my lash and I'm probably doing them and I probably needed them at that point. But exactly. And you already knew it. No one had to tell you that. Right. You right. Know? But the fact yep, that we have yep. to hide in the shadows, man, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, it is. It's these, you know, we're eating our own, unfortunately. And it's um, that's that's why I love what you're doing. You know, it's. It's a, it's a group of people with a very open, open mind towards something we all love. We're doing the same thing. We're taking our families out and we're teaching them to be responsible, ethical hunters. It may be my way is a little different than the other. And, and so be it. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, I'd heard before, or I'd, I've read plenty of things that I did not like at all. Um, it just made me sick in my stomach, you know, reading some of this because it's a hunter downgrading another hunter. hunter. Yep. Yep. And, and maybe it was, maybe it was the archer that was downgrading this guy that is going to a crossbow. And you and I talked about that the very first time we talked and, um, but I, I mean, it, it could even be said, it could even be said, right. If somebody's going to talk, you know, about, about long range shooting, it could even be said with open sights, right. I'm capable. Absolutely. I have a 30, 30 in here that I absolutely love. And I'm capable of, of knocking out, you know, an eight inch plate. Like you wouldn't believe with open sights at 200 yards, but somebody could say, well, right. you're taking a shot with open sights at 200 yards with a 30, 30. Um, you know, I got a problem with that. You know, why aren't you using a scope? Right. right? You should be using a scope right. at that. I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. Right. It is time. I spent behind if my you, weapon of choice. Sorry. Absolutely. And it, and it, no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you, man. And if you can properly ID that target, which is our responsibility, we properly ID the target. It's a good target. We're, we look behind the target. We look in front of the target. We're clear of any cows or calves. We've got a clear shot. That's, that's our decision. And, um, and it's our hunt. It's your tag. And, how how you take that animal i've got no problem with as long as it was ethical and you know that that's the thing we share the folks i've heard on your podcast we share this we share a love for the same thing and it's these animals are god's gift man and and uh you know i'm super grateful to be able to hunt these animals i'm grateful i have the health you know and if I ever, you know, if I ever don't, I'm calling Tate, you know, I'm going to have Tate <laughs> yeah. fire me up. Fire you up, I'm man. Gonna get, yeah. I'm going to get off my duff and get out there and hunt them anyway, if I'm not feeling good, you know, but anyway, um, now I'm with you. So I would say that's the number one misconception. Number two would be equipment. Um, you know, I, I don't think on equipment, one thing that, I see a lot is guys that try to buy their way into long range, you know, with top, top notch equipment right off the bat. Um, you know, if they don't understand the fundamentals of long range shooting, that rifle's not going to shoot itself. 
And uh, so it's something that we can't buy our way into this. Money, money won't put us there. So I think there's got to be a level of training and, and um, I have utmost respect for those guys that are self-taught, you know, um, I was self-taught when I was a kid, you know, and uh, that's how long range started for me. I was poking at a deer with a 44 Magnum rifle and, uh, and I just couldn't get it done. It was too far. It was Western Oklahoma and my dad killed it with a seven mag. And that's when long range started for me. I went back to my grandpa, told him the story and he pulled out his 308 bolt gun. And he said, I want to trade you this 308 for your 44 Magnum. And so sure enough, that was the start of my journey. I still have that rifle. And he, and he wheeled me the 44 Magnum when he passed, you know, he had a plan. So anyway, that was the beginning, but, um, you can, you can get this done with, um, an out of the box rifle compared to that custom rifle. It's the shooter. It's the knowledge. Now, obviously one can print a tighter hole, um, the way it's made different components, different barrels. Sure. I mean, I get that, but if, if the, if the shooter doesn't have that knowledge, some baseline of knowledge, the rifle won't shoot itself. So I really believe that's a misconception as well. And I've never, I guess I've never considered that, but makes perfect sense. Um, you know, technology leads us astray in, in every, excuse me, in every choice of weapon, right? Whether it's archery or rifle, um, and, and I've fallen victim to victim to it, uh, and I'll admit it, you know, you, you think you get what you're paying for, but you're right, man. It's, it's still, it's still about that time behind that, uh, that equipment, man. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a ton of, you know, YouTube videos and whatnot, but I think we really have to turn this internal um, filter, this internal filter on when we go to watch this stuff. And, and if we find something good there, a good tip or a trick, we take it and we run with it and we share it with somebody else. That's great. But there's going to be a lot of things there that, um, to get in trouble too, you know. I think we have to be careful and keep a filter on with YouTube, but uh, there's a lot of good info, info out there, no doubt about it. I mean, with something like long range too, right? I mean, it, it's... I guess with anything that you're that you're starting off new in, um, you're going to watch 10, 15, 20 videos, you know, leading up to that big purchase or that, you know, first day at the range. But how do you how do you get out of the weeds, if you will, when it comes to that right. information? Right. The average, you know, Joe, you know, that's that's shooting 100, 200 yards at the local range really doesn't is he going to be able to pull that out? You know, I mean, there's a lot right. of resources, right? I mean, so, you know, YouTube and all that stuff can be, uh, can be, uh, used for was well, James Nash said good and evil. Um, that's right. You know, there's a man, it's a mess. It is. And to your point, how does he get out of weeds? So when, um, one thing I love is we teach, um, we teach the shooter, the individual shooter, and we teach his partner to be a spotter with a spotting skill. We teach both. 
And um, so we're having the spotter watch the bullet trace, having him, him or her call wind and be proactive with the wind before the shot, have a wind plan, and then the shooter trusts the spotter. So we, what I love to watch is that team grow. There's a time where you need to be all over that team and on that team and helping them maybe laying right next to them with a spotting scope and talking them through their trigger press or whatever. And then there's a time to back off and let them grow. And knowing where that is takes time. You know, it takes time to know when to back off and watch the growth. And you've planted the seeds and now watch it happen. It's a beautiful thing. What we do is we'll, we'll say two, the first two rounds on you and then the instructor behind you has got you. I've got you. You know, no worries. You're going to hit the steel. Just don't quit. If you quit, I can't help you. Um, and people don't, you know, uh, but that's just a common term I like to use. Because it's real, you know, don't quit me. We will never, ever quit you. But do not quit me. And so anyway, um, I call it dirt time. Dirt time, when those rounds go in the dirt, typically people learn more from dirt time than they do, than they do from steel, when it impacts steel target. Um, and uh, something beautiful happens when, when that spotter you can tell he really gets it on, you know, minutes of angle adjustment needed up. He, he's starting to get these concepts. He absolutely grasped it when he says, Hey, come up three and a half minutes, hold left edge and send it. And it's a dead center hit from the dirt at 800 yards. That's a beautiful moment. That's team growth. You celebrate it and move on, you know, definitely celebrate it. So that's, that's the that's the where the passion comes from right there, man. It's just there's nothing better than that. Just seeing that success. So you just opened the can of worms, man. I figured I did. You, <laughs> you yeah. know where I'm going. So <laughs> I do. Yeah. We we would actually probably need, I'm gonna say at least an hour, hour and a half to really dive into MOA or minute of angle. Right. Um so why don't you give us novices or, you know, folks that don't even know what MOA is, minute of angle. Uh, why don't you give us a brief explanation on that and how that's used in, in not just LR, but our, you know, our short yarder shooting too behind that rifle. Sure. Sure. And, um, do you mind if I touch on mill right after that? No, sir. Go right into it. Go right into it. There's a real easy, the way we do this is I want people to speak both languages. I look at it as MOA is the most common language we speak in shooting. We've been speaking it since we were little kids and we just didn't know it. And when you look at the top of that scope and it says a quarter of an inch at a hundred yards, that is a quarter of a minute of angle and four clicks equals one inch. One inch is a minute of angle at a hundred yards. So we've been using minute of angle scopes. We just didn't know it since we were little kids and we didn't have a mill scope back then. Um, mill came around eight or nine years ago, um, became extremely popular. It's been around a long time in artillery, mortar, fire, but, um, became extremely popular at that point. But so let's talk about minute of angle real quick. 
it's nothing more than anger unit of measurement. And so I just want folks to think of it this way. If, if we um, have four clicks on this minute of angle scope and on the top of the scope, it says, so let's just look at elevation. Only. Let's think about elevation just for a minute. Elevation trajectory come up, which is the easiest part of long range shooting, by the way. That's usually the part that most people worry about. They're like, I don't have my data. I don't know what, that's the easiest part is predicting the trajectory, the path of the bullet. So when we go up four clicks on a quarter minute scope, each click equals a quarter of a minute or a quarter of an inch at a hundred yards. That's going to move the bullet impact one inch at a hundred yards. Now let's just start to take this angle down range. And if you can imagine a hundred yards, let's just take a traffic cone, a traffic cone or some kind of a cone like that and, and hold it towards the target, the small end towards us. That tip of that is one inch. There's your hundred yards at two inch. It's going to get bigger. Two inches or 200 yards. It's going to be two inches, 300 yards. That same four clicks you put on originally is going to equal three inches at 300 yards, four inches at 400 yards. It's that easy. 10 inches at a thousand yards. That is minute of angle. Now, um, I've got a lot of engineer friends, engineer friends. It's good to be surrounded by super smart people. Sometimes. Um, you know, but absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> my, my engineer friends though, I mean, they would love for me to say that, it's not exactly one inch at a hundred yards, but it doesn't matter. It does not matter. You can't tell the difference. It's 1.047 inches. It just doesn't matter. And that's a half an inch difference at a thousand yards. You cannot discern a half an inch at a thousand yards. You just can't do it. There's much bigger problems than that half an inch downrange. So one inch at a hundred yards, that's one minute of angle. That's how it works. So when I teach, uh, the first time I teach folks this minute of angle and mill in perspective, this is how I do it. And I say, so I teach them that part and then I say, listen, so mill, most folks are coming to, to the school now with mills, not all of them. There's usually one or two holdouts still. And I'll give you my opinion on which one is the best here in just a second. And, and neither are the best, you know, really. They're not. It's, it's, it's what you're comfortable with. Just run with what you're comfortable with. But, so let's think about the same example. Four clicks on that minute of angle scope equaled one inch at 100 yards. Three clicks on a mill scope equals one inch at 100 yards. It's a third and a quarter. Three clicks on a mill scope. That same original three clicks is two inches at 200, three at three, 10 inches at a thousand. That's how we originally teach mills. But there's so much more power. There is more to teach in a mill. I just, I like them to run with that knowledge. And I say, look, that's all we're going to talk about. Once they understand that, 
and I go around the room and I look them in the eyes. Say, please be honest with me. If you don't understand that, we'll talk about it again until you do. And then I get them to the range. <clears throat> if they can run with that for a day, with that knowledge, that's all they need at an elementary level, then we can add on to the mills. And then we can start thinking about mills in one mill. One mill is 10 clicks. So that's 3.6 inches roughly at 100 yards or 36 inches at 1,000. If you tell somebody that the first setting, they hit the brick wall a lot of times, <laughs> you know, and they're stuck. So that's why I like to just say, let's keep it elementary. And just know four clicks on a, on a, you know, on a, on a minute of angle scope, same thing, three clicks on a, on a mill. It equals the same thing. The, the, the real difference there to be exact, I'll be exact again. Point three, when we say point three mils, 10 clicks is one mil. So these are intense. So you can call it point three mils or you can call it three tenths. It's the same thing. It's three clicks. Okay. That really equals, it doesn't equal exactly one inch. It equals 1.083. So it's just a little, little more than, than, than um, MOA. Yeah. But it's still not enough. This is exactly how I do it. Every time I shoot my rifle, that's, I keep it as simple as possible because you know, when the, when the stuff hits the fan in life or on a hunt or, you know, in Iraq or wherever, you need to keep it simple and you need to be able to rock and roll. And so, you know, and if, if you're in this complex trig problem, you know, it's no good. We keep our wind formulas extremely simple as well. And they're extremely effective where I've seen, page long wind formulas, you know, a full page wind formula. That's insane. By the time we figured the wind formula, the wind has changed 13 times. <laughs> Game's gone, man. You know? Yeah. So I like to, you know, I mean, target exposure times are short and we all understand this. You know, when a bull comes out to feed and, you know, his cows start to leave, he is gone from that opening. He is gone. So we have this, two to five minute time period. I mean, who knows, but anyway, that's any, is, is that good enough for you? MLA yeah, yeah. And Mill? yeah, no, no, I, I get it. I hope everybody else gets it. Good. Awesome. But they can shoot me a message if they ever need any more. Um, we love it, man. We love sharing and it's all good. So that parlays us right into this next one, man. And let's talk about, you know, the, the selection, the reticle selection. Um, sure. What, I don't know if yeah. I say recommend, I, I kind of think you're going to tell me what you're comfortable with or what you use, but you know, why don't you go into some of that and, and your preference, I guess, and what's, uh, what's the best, you know, in your opinion, I guess it would be. You got it. So, and one thing I didn't, finish saying on MOA and mill is which one's better. It, it you know, I kind of started on that. It doesn't really matter. They're both extremely useful. And I think the old saying is, and I don't know who said it. Uh, I, I don't know who said this, but it was a long time ago in rifle marksmanship. They said the man with one, one gun is a feared man. 
And I don't, I don't know if that was the colonel from uh, uh, Gunsight, or I don't, I don't know who said that. I'd like to figure that out. But um, I, I think the, if you use one rifle, one caliber, one optic, one bullet choice, you stick with that, you're going to understand how that rifle is affected by wind drift, by trajectory, et cetera, et cetera. So um, anyway, so we jumped right into reticle choice and scope optics choice. Um, so, you know, on, on my rifle and Denise's rifle, we have a, um, uh, you okay with me talking brands? On yeah. Here? Yeah. Yeah. You okay with that? Yes, okay. sir. And it's just personal, personal preference, of course, but, um, we have uh Vortex Razor Gen 2s on, on both of our rifles and we've had those on there for quite some time. The same, um, it's an EBR 2C reticle. Uh, which is a Christmas tree style reticle. It has different wind holds and different elevation holds down further you go, just wider. For some people, they say that's too busy. And at one point in my uh, career, it was too busy for me too. I started off with them. We, um, we had M24s, which is nothing more than a Remington 700 long action 308 with Leupold Mark IV optics on there with it's a 10 power fixed scope. That's what we were issued in the military. That's what we used, a 10 power fixed optic with mill dots. So, um, you know, now using a 27 power optic, you know, I'd say this is what we need to give our warriors down range, these type of optics. Let's win some wars, you know? Um, let's rock and roll. These 10 power optics are extremely tough, but they're still getting it done. And of course, since I've retired that, that evolution, they're starting to get better optics, but, uh, um, so the Christmas tree is, is, um, too busy for some it's fine. But what I suggest highly suggest is whether it's MOA or mill, the reticle should be exactly the same as the turrets. The turrets should be mill and the reticles should be mill. You can use either or. Once you find, and, and typically we use a, a ballistic calculator of some sort, and it gives us our trajectory. Like you know, uh, Hornady Fordoff is a phenomenal solver. Um, it's awesome. Kestrel, uh, Kestrel wind meter, we use those as well. I use both of those. Just depends on the application. And I use a notepad, a right in the rain notepad, uh, in a zip pouch as a backup. If everything fails, my batteries fail, which happens in super cold weather. Batteries fail quickly. Um, these guys that rely on their iPhone for their data, they've really got to rethink that when they go hunting, you know? gets down around 20 degrees iphone dies done yeah super yeah super fast so anyway um then there's um bdc reticles bdc bullet drop compensated reticles um i used bdc reticles for quite a few years um hunting whitetail here and in kansas and and uh, extremely successful but at shorter distances you know um three to four, 400 yards. Um, I did use a BDC on an antelope out west out in New Mexico one year. Um, 
at uh, like 600 yards, which was extremely effective. But the, the thing is, we have got to go out and collect that data prior to the hunt. That's where that responsibility would come right back to that responsibility. We can't just shoot this rifle at a hundred yards and expect it to track. These BDC reticles are based on a velocity and a set, uh, a set caliber, you know, um, but typically a, a velocity of a, of a projectile. So it, we've got to go out and true this up and, um, they typically don't match up exactly. Um, what I have our students do is draw that reticle perfectly on a piece of paper, exactly what you see, how many lines you see. And, and, uh, and we go out and validate that, that, that data collection. And then we, we come back in the morning when it's 30 degrees cooler and we check our validation atmospheric conditions change velocity and we have to keep track of that. So this is where the Kestrel is, is quite useful. The Kestrel figures that for you, the atmospheric conditions, elevation increases, you know, when you climb a thousand feet today, you know, your bullet's going to fly faster at a thousand feet than it did down here. All of that has a major impact on a hit or a miss. So, um, I, I think BDC reticle, um, is, is for that guy that, or, or gal that doesn't want to take it to a, a super advanced level. They want something that is extremely fast, fast on target and potentially second and third round impacts or multiple targets you know, maybe coyote hunting or hog hunting. Yeah. See, and I always, um, I have a BDC, uh, on one of my rifles and I, and I think man, about 400 yards for me is where I was really comfortable. Um, and I'm not, I shouldn't say it like that. I was comfortable. I wasn't really comfortable and I'm going to say 300 and less. I was like, yeah, no problem. I don't right. know. I didn't really care for the BDC, man. I shoot that. I shoot the EBR one uh, on the Viper, uh, mm-hmm. the PST, yeah. and I really, really like that one, man. Um, I've enjoyed that, that scope. It's MOA. I'm not going to mill. It took me long enough to learn that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you, man. Stick with one gun. Yeah. You know, and I is don't it, hunt rifle it, enough. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Is, is that a first focal plane or a second focal plane optic? Uh, it's a second focal plane. Okay. Okay. So. Why don't we get we, into that since you brought it up? That. Yeah. Let's, let's go. I yeah, was going to have sorry. you. Yep. I'm, I'm not trying to lead you, brother. No, no, it's all. perfect, man. That means it's flowing and we're, yeah. you know, we got a good conversation here. Uh, I'm going to yeah. appear to be smarter than I am. <laughs> You're doing great. Yeah. So it, this second focal plane, this is a big deal when we have a BDC. So folks out there that, that may not understand it, they can look at their optic, point it in a safe direction, clear it, obviously open the bolt, check the chamber and then point it in a safe direction and look through the optic while they move their variable power setting, the magnification dial in the back. Um, if the reticle stays the same size, that is the second focal plane optic. Um, and, and not to get too deep into the weeds, but um, I love it. I love it when somebody has a duplex reticle. Now you want to talk about it. It's very difficult 
but they'll have a duplex reticle, or maybe they they just have a couple of BDC dash marks beneath the du- between the center crosshair. Just a couple of reference points, and that's it. And then they run out. I love it when they run out, and it's a second focal plane because you're not done. So uh, the the way it works, if, if you think about it this way, it has zero effect what power setting you're on when you're using the center crosshair. Zero effect. You can have it on full power. You can have it on, let's say it's a three by or a four by 16 power optic. You can have it on 16 power or four power. It has zero effect on the point of impact. But when you start holding off and holding over on those dash marks beneath or holding off on wind drift, it does matter. Most of those optics are designed to be used on full power. That's not always a true statement. You know, you can find it in your owner's manual, but um, I would say your EBR1, if it was a second focal plane, it would be designed to be utilized. Those BDC reticles are to be utilized on 16 power. Yes. Yeah. Mine, mine so, is, yeah, mine is exactly that a four to 16 by 50 EBR one okay. second focal. Cool. So yeah, I gotta be, I gotta be at that 16 for them. Now the, right. now the BDC that I have, um, that BDC is man. I don't even know how old that thing is. I haven't shot that rifle in a while, but it's it's been in there a while. It's an old old Nikon. It was my first. That was my first hunting rig. I was able to buy myself. Um, nice. Yeah, and that one, uh, I'd have to pull that thing out to really see what it was again. But I've been, you know, like I said, this this EBR one that I have on that Viper, I really like it. Oh, so yeah, let's stuff. talk about the uh, the first focal plane and the difference there. Sure. So first focal plane makes it all that goes away. Um, you know, once you know, if you're if you're holding the center, it doesn't matter. And if you're holding on those holdover wires on the BDC reticle, or say you're holding on the third mil dot down or mil dash mark down, it doesn't matter that you're on 16 power or four power. First focal plane um, is is not going to change the point of impact. Where a second focal plane will, but this is where that second focal plane. To me, we have. If if we're going to be in this, we should understand it and not look at it as a negative. We just have to understand it and how to use it. Here's here's another thing. Um, When you're shooting at a long distance, it's nice to have um, a second focal plane. A lot of times they use them for extended long range distance shooting, um, where. The first focal plane, the the lines are so small, you know, or so large. So anyway, it's um, there's a use for everything. And so one one other example I, I started giving a minute ago on the second focal plane. Say we were at 16 power, and we're going downrange. We're shooting these targets and just going further and further and further. You get to about 800 yards, and you run up, you run out of hold marks. You're at the bottom and you say, Hey, I'm done. Well, no, you're not done. Stay on that same bottom hold mark. Let's say it's a fourth dash mark down. And now it's turned down your power. Start turning your power down and shoot the next target. 
as you turn the power down, your point of impact goes up. It's a phenomenal thing. So you can go all the way to four power. Oh, wow. From and just, so, stay, you know? j- just stay on that dash coming down from 16 yep. all the way down to four. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's awesome. It's good stuff. So if you know that, it's it's awesome. We use that a lot. And it, it's because guys didn't know they had a second focal plane. Usually those are a little cheaper. So they were trying to get into a budget optic. That's fine. And when they, I love to hear that on the line. I love to hear I'm, I'm out of come ups. I'm done. And I, I just get this little spark, you know, run over there and say, no, we're not done, man. Let's rock and roll. So, um, but you think about it, that's the Vietnam era. Um, you know, they use duplex reticles at the second focal plane optics, very minimal, and they got it done. Yeah, so it's good stuff. So my first mentor was uh, Steve Suttles. He was yeah. I'm I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go right ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Steve Suttles was a. Um, got to give a shout out to him. It's um, Marine Scout Sniper in Vietnam, and he was really one of my first mentors and just a tremendous fella. And he's still going strong, which is awesome. So, uh, the beginning of the MOA discussion, right? You said that a lot of guys are worried about that trajectory. And I know why you said it. So why don't you give us, right? It's easy to track that bullet. It's easy to determine where that bullet is going to impact with a, with enough and not even enough, right? With minor study to our weapon and our round and, and the things that go into that, um, you were referring to the windage, um, in either direction, I'm assuming being the more difficult of the two yes, to sir. determine, right? So why don't you give us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So trajectory, like we were saying, a, a ballistic solver will give us that pretty quick. I mean, if we had, you know, if you and I went out to the range right now today and we had, we could uh, check our muzzle velocity um, with a, with a crony, a chronograph, we check that quickly. Um, and we get our speed. We plug in that speed. We plug in the temperature outside. We plug in the altitude that we're at. Uh, the Kestrel will give us what's called a density altitude. Um, that's what the bullet feels based on all the atmospheric conditions, barometric pressure, temperature, humidity, altitude. Uh, we may be at a thousand feet, but if it's, let's say we're at a thousand feet actual altitude right now and it's a hundred degrees outside, the bullet will feel like it's more, it's, it's traveling around 4,000 feet in the mountains. You see what I mean? That's how the bullet flies. So that's that, so that's that one, friction of the air that we talked about earlier. Yes, sir. Yes. Less dense air or more dense air. Absolutely. That's friction. Yeah. Yeah. You're good at this. So <laughs> and you need to, <laughs> you need to know that in Southern Cal too, because I know I heard you, you've hunting where you're hunting in the uh, hundred plus degree temperatures. (laughs) It's crazy, man. Crazy. So anyway, the wind is, um, the wind is our constant problem. 
it's it's constant. So we use Mirage as the chief indicator of of wind direction and wind velocity. What's the speed? It's going to take time, time and experience and judgment to learn this over and over and over. But um, so we can quickly judge the wind at our location. And you you touched on this early on. Um, we can judge it with a wind meter at our location. It'll give us the velocity. We can figure out the direction. But then we have mid-range to the target and at the target. So at both of those locations, I'm going to be studying vegetation. I'm going to study mirage. I'm looking at, um, you know, the, the grass, the trees. Um, when small trees start to sway, you know, the wind's picking up. Your hat starts to blow off. That's above 12 miles an hour. Lightly felt on your face is three to five. Those are old, um, just um, old ways that, that we've learned over time. But th- the best way to do this is take one of those kestrels, the windometer, turn it on, and test yourself in different speeds. And that's how you learn over time. Or, or have somebody on a cleared range. What we would do at the sniper school is, is um, have instructors downrange. All the rifles are clear and safe. And we would be on the radios and have the students look at Mirage downrange and give their guesstimates. And the instructor would be down there with a the kestrel reading actual wind. You know, this is how we learn. That's the toughest part of long range shooting. Is wind. That's the variable, right? That's the not understanding that can mean, you know, an inch and a half off target. In some cases, it could mean two foot off target, right? I mean, that is the variable that we're fighting. That's why it's so important. you, You can't, you can't map that out beforehand. That's right. And that I mean, that brings up a whole nother discussion. So James Nash turned me on to a book um, and I've been reading that book and I'm actually through my second getting into my second reading now because it's just way more sciencey than I'm used to. Um, but man, you don't really understand. And, and I think you explained it perfectly with the analogy of the river and it's flowing through that. And if you know, you have that, that gorge down there, it creates that eddy. Um, so understanding that effect through time and space, man, I mean that there's no way you can map that out. So using the mirage, using the mirage is a big deal. Right. And I'm not going to say, excuse me, that my shots are, uh, are that far out there. I'm not stretching them nowhere near where you guys are stretching them. Um, sure. But looking and, and understanding that that mirage is a tool in your tool bag, so to speak. I mean, that is a big deal, right? I, I'm a big, you know, a big wind guy, or I thought I was until James told me to read that book. Thanks, Captain James Nash, for that one. Um, what, was the, what was the name of that book again? I forget. It is uh, Predator Prey Dynamics, The Rule That's of right. uh, Olfaction um, by Michael Conroy. It is, in my opinion, it's a great read. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by it. It is a bit dry, um, and you have to get into it. And like I said, the science-y mathematical parts, that'll probably be right up your alley. 
but man, right. it's, it's something else. It is something else. I, yeah, it's a good book. It's a little spendy, but yeah, it's a good, uh, it's definitely a good read, but so listening to you and then taking what I've read in that book and putting that together now is just like lights are coming on, man. Lights are coming on. Awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, and you know, our tree hunters, man, are naturals. I mean, truly some of the best snipers that we had come through the school, these are typically pretty, pretty young guys, but at the same time, they're not recommended for sniper school until they have maturity and they have to be command selected. Um, very, very high mental stability type individual. So once they're selected, they're usually around 22 years old, 23 when they come through school. And uh, the first thing I would ask them is who's, I want to know who are hunters here. And you'd be amazed at how many kids, these, and I say kids, these young men, and and we did train young women. Um, We allowed, um, we graduated by the time I retired, I think there was eight graduated uh, females in in our program. And they were, um, I'll say it, I mean, they were badasses. So they deserved every bit of it. Um, anyway, <clears throat> most of these folks were, um, were not hunters. Uh, you'd be amazed at how many had never, ever looked through a magnified optic before. So it was... It was a lot of work. It was, it was awesome talking about light bulbs coming on, <clears throat> but the hunters, when we started teaching, um, concealment exercises and stalking and, um, field craft, you know, 10%, 10% of our job in the sniper community is, or back at that point when I was, um, 10% is, is shooting. The 90% is advanced land navigation, uh, surviving it um getting in without being spotted and getting out without being spotted um sustaining for three to four days um you know it's 10 percent was shooting the rest of it was field craft but those hunters were awesome for me, I know if I if I put in the time right, I could stretch it out. No doubt in my mind. I got a rifle. I got a rifle in a safe that'll do it. Yep. It's a time thing, right? It's putting in the time, you know, that that it's going to take me. And and for me to pull away from my bow is the most difficult thing when you start talking about you know getting out in the field, right? Um, unless it means extending my season uh, <laughs> with a rifle somehow. But usually, you know, it's the bow that's doing the extending. That's right. But I don't I don't feel like it's something that is going to take that much. You know, it's just putting in the work, I guess. For me, it was, you know, I got yeah. into reloading. Um, I started with my 30-06, started reloading that, got that all dialed in, which, you know, made me super ecstatic. And then, you know, got into my my 7 mil and uh, started, you know, going after the bow like crazy and uh, just kind of let it fall off a little bit. So... I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to find something that's going to make me pick that seven mil back up and uh, really get after it. I wish you were close, and and you and I would be on the range tomorrow. That'd be awesome. Oh man, yeah, we get you fired up in a hurry. That'd be awesome. But you you know that reloading too. That's another thing that that I do not do. You'd think I would, but um, my grandfather taught me how to reload at a at a pretty early age. <clears throat> But when you're in the military, you're really spoiled to 
to this ammunition. You're always getting this match ammunition and <clears throat> to train with. And um, so we were pretty spoiled. And now I love, I absolutely love to do a demo shoot with factory ammunition. I love it. Is I want people to <clears throat> to understand when that dem- demo is done, and they see hopefully they see all center hits downrange, um, and we do it with a spotter. I'll have somebody spot me and I'll shoot and and um, if they're calling the wind right, which we're showing them so many things, we're putting it all together with the demo shoot. But I want them to know that they can get it done with good quality factory ammo. Well, you know why I started reloading is I fell for the sucker punch, right? Um, which I've done more times than I want to admit, but it was, yeah, reload, you know, over time it's cheaper. Yeah. If you don't go spend two, $3,000 on, on reloading equipment. And then, yeah, that might make sense if I reload for 20 years, but yeah, I could have stuck with the factory, the factory ammo, man. Yeah, man. It has an upfront cost for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it sure does. So, um, round selection. Yeah. What's your What's your go to LR round? My go to LR round is my hunting round, and it's Hornady ELDX. Um, I used to shoot uh, Burger um, HVLDs, hunting VLDs, and I use. Um, I've, I've tested extensively the um, Hornady ELDX, and I tell you, um, one reason I like the Hornady Fordoff Solver too is it's a free app. That's a big deal, you know. It's a big deal. I've got like twelve apps on my phone, so I've tried them out over the years, and some of them were pretty expensive, you know. These these apps, and and they're good, and uh, there's Streelock, there's all sorts of apps. Uh, Knight had an app. There, a whole bunch, but Fordoff is a free app, and their Doppler, their Doppler um, flight pass. So, I mean, this is pre- precise data we're getting out of here. Um, these algorithms are are Doppler effect. So, anyway, it's it's good stuff. Um, but so, in ballistics, we have um, internal ballistics that's the working inside. The chamber inside the bolt, the firing pin is is, is hammered. It, it uh, ignites the powder. Projectile goes down the down the barrel and out of the crown. Once it leaves the crown, that's so. All of that is internal ballistics. Once it leaves the crown, it's called um, external ballistics until it meets the target. So typically in a class, we're talking about external ballistics the majority of the time the flight of the bullet. Once it hits the, the front of the target, that's called terminal ballistics. I'm sure you've studied this yourself, but for anyone that hasn't, terminal ballistics is the study of the projectile when it hits the target until it comes to rest. So that's what, as hunters, that's another one of our responsibilities is to use something that we absolutely are, are confident in, have, have confidence and and we have this belief that it will work um, to put this animal, you know, at at uh, at rest as quickly as possible. Same with broadhead selection and whatnot, you know. So, what's what's your caliber of choice in that ELDX? Yeah. So, um, 
when we when we're hunting elk we use 300 wind mag we just finished our 300 prc builds um recently and those are um carbon fiber barrels and whatnot i mean these were designed to be a lighter mountain rifle not too light though the, the calibers oh. the, the, the caliber oh you pretty, just opened up a can of worms <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> uh, the caliber is pretty heavy you know to be too light um so i i really had these planned with a couple of pounds extra um because i, I wanted the, the recoil to be tamed just a little bit and um Denise and I both just built our first demo rifles in that PRC, 300 PRC. 6.5 PRC is a phenomenal caliber, too. These are both new Sammy spec rounds just this October. Well, the 300 PRC is brand new. 6.5 PRC has been around a bit, but those are some phenomenal rounds. And now we're talking 200 pounds more energy at 500 yards than a 300 wind mag. Yeah. These are serious, serious rounds. Punching. Oh, I'm super happy with them. For a deer, um, 6.5 Creedmoor, no problem. Um, tested Hornady ELDX. Um, you know, Hunter is my son, Hunter, and my daughter, Ashley. They're really great testers. I give them these rounds and, and uh, when we go to Kansas or whatever. Um, but Hunter um, killed his biggest buck ever. And I've got a video of this, and it's like the buck disappeared. It's like he just vanished. Uh, he dropped so quickly in his tracks, and he was using a 6.5 uh, with ELDX, um, 200 yards, I believe, right at 200 yards. And uh, it's, I've, I've experienced this with just about everything. It's DRT, you know, it's done. Elk is a different story. You know, elk is... That's uh, a, yeah, it's a tough beast. Yeah, and, but I tell you, one thing I've got to say on elk real quick, I would be... It would be bad if I forgot to say this. Um, this goes back to ethics, too. One thing I have found is, you know, if, if, if you and I are riding, riding into a hunting area and we bust uh, a herd of elk, so now this bull is charged up and he's running and finally he stops and he does the fatal look back. It may take four or five shots out of a 300 wind mag to put that bull down because he's charged up. What I have seen and found, and by talking to very, very experienced outfitters and um, that are fairly long range friendly, when you when you see a bull in the open and he's feeding, that's a very ethical time to take him for that reason. He's not charged up. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll experience, uh, um, you know, it's one round and done. Very few steps. Right. So, yeah, you kind of opened a can of worms and we'll make it brief. Um, you hear a lot of light I, I I don't even know how to put that. Uh, <laughs> you yeah. know where I'm going, man. Oh, yeah. Is there rifle. a such thing as a as a light rifle for long range hunting? Because I have one, and it's not a custom build. But man, that son of a gun is not light by any stretch of the imagination. Right. 
Right. So we start talking about pushing, pushing some of these rounds, right? The, uh, the six, five PRC, the 300 PRC, even 300 wind mag, you're not talking a light rifle. I mean, that, that's not going to be conducive of, of, you know, thousand yard shots with, with tight groupings, man. What are we, what, what are we expecting out of a rifle, you know, poundage wise when we're looking at, you know, distance and things of that nature in some of these rounds? Sure. Yeah. So, um, my goal for this one was to have it capable in the planning when we were planning these rifles with the builder. So we can build these for folks. I wanted to be able to build them a rifle that would be somewhere in the 10 and a half pound range with an optic. That's with the optic that's ready to roll. That's pretty light for long range rig. Now, if, if you and I are going on a sheep hunt, that's a whole different story. You know, the, we need as light as possible uh, because it's so physical, physically demanding. But, but typically, you know, on a, mine is um, these new rifles after, keep in mind, I added a couple of pounds to them. Um, they were 13 and a half pounds. And um, it's perfect. The recoil is not devastating. Um, we use a, a brake and a suppressor. Um, the suppressor just screws on right over the brake. And, um, we do hunt with suppressors a lot if it's legal in that state. Um, every state it's legal, I'm hunting with a suppressor. And it's really, it's just become so pleasing to the ears to not, <laughs> you know, to not have to put your protection in. Um, my hearing is definitely damaged over the years. That's for sure. Um, with a suppressor, it's nice, but um, a, a suppressor does recoil just a little more. It pushes a little different, has a different pulse to it uh, than the than a regular brake. A brake will recoil a little less than a suppressor. But um, anyway, yeah, so 13 and a half to 10 pounds, that's just, for me, that's enough. That's enough. We, um, when Denise was hunting her bull, she was carrying a 17 pound desert tech rifle and, and on bum knees, you know? And so, I mean, she's, she's my inspiration, man. She's awesome. She's tough. And, um, yeah, that's a, yeah. And I was carrying a desert tech. Yeah. I was carrying the same, same gun. And, um, you know, we, we just kept saying, look, we're getting older. We want to hunt faster. We want to move more. And, um, you know, these rifles are really bogging us down. This is a big, big part of our gear here. But typically when you're shooting long range, the guys are, guys and gals are using a heavy rifle. So when we're getting into this hunting aspect, ultra light rifles, um, if the caliber is a six, five PRC, or a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 308, you know, a, a lesser mag, lesser than Magnum caliber, obviously lighter is, is great because the recoil is, is not as severe. But with the big 300, you build a six pound rifle, you're hoping for one shot because that's about all you'll want, you know? Yep. I had something there and I, oh, I'm sorry. Cold bore. 
Yes. So uh, yes. that's a big deal, right? I mean, Absolutely. not just with, with LR shooting, but, you know, with our, you know, call it our average guy shooting. <laughs> right. Um, but, but cold war is a big thing, right? I mean, there's, there's, you know, variables in, in all of we do now. How do you, how do you deal with cold bore? Is that something that we can tune the rifle to? Um, yeah, give us some on that one, man. Yeah. So every barrel is different. So here's here's my suggestion on cold bore. Pretty much all of us can get to a hundred yard range within a close proximity of home. It's it's really difficult to get to a distance range for a lot of people that live maybe in a metro area or whatever. But a hundred yard range would typically get to pretty quick. So that's the best way to start tracking cold board deviation. Um, but but keep in mind there's cold cold dirty bore and cold clean bore. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean we have to add that to it, you know, and, and yes. So if let's say this barrel is already fouled with copper fouling. So we've shot at least 20 shots through it and the imperfections inside, maybe the tool marks inside, if it's a cut barrel, um, cut rifling, the tool marks are, um, or any imperfections are filled up with copper and copper is a lubricant. It's, it's what needs to happen. So this barrel is fouled. Now it's dirty. We need to do a cold bore tomorrow morning with that barrel. Now that's dirty. And, and you'll see a difference between, uh, typically, a, d- a difference between uh, a dirty cold bore and a clean. So my cleaning procedures need to be exactly the same every single time. Everything is consistency with long range. Everything we do needs to be consistent. And we just drive this home in our classes. Um, it's just extremely important. Everything's consistent, including cleaning um and um we typically you know long range folks typically now there's a a lot of different theories out there and we don't want to go there but um different theories you know what's funny is most of them work it's just a different way of of applying it so one of my theories is i don't i don't push that copper out I don't clean that copper fouling out for over 200 rounds. I let, let that, you know, I'll clean the carbon fouling out. That's what's devastating or damaging causes rust over time. But our powders are much more efficient and clean than they used to be too. So everything's getting better, including heat sensitivity in our powder um, when you're reloading, you can use heat sensitivity powder. So that atmospheric condition has less effect on your trajectory. There's just so much cool stuff happening right now in long range. But yeah, so that, if that answers the question on cold board, that there's a lot to it, but it's just tracking that deviation. So I'll shoot a shot. Um, and especially if, you know, if I'm a hunter, I have got to understand cold board because that's the one that matters. So I go out, I track it. I, I, um, I document the day and the time, the altitude and all the conditions I document when I zero that rifle at a hundred yards and it's dead on, on the dot. So I document it. 
That's my starting baseline point. From that point, we know it's going to deviate every day on elevation. Every day it's going to deviate a little bit because of temperature and density altitude. You know, it's going to move around because of the atmospheric conditions, even on the same range. You know, if I zeroed it at 70 degrees and I go out in the morning and it's 30, yeah, it's, it's going to shoot a bit low at 100 yards. But I need to understand why. That doesn't mean I'm going to slip my zero and re-zero it. I'm going to document it and move on. Well, that's what a lot of people fall to. Yes, sir. Right? Is that first couple shots, and then they're you know sitting there fiddle, fiddle messing with their with their zero, thinking that you know what a minute you know wait a minute I was on now I'm off what's going on that's right and then it becomes a then it becomes a battle every time you're at the range for the lack oh, yeah. of that information. You're exactly right. They're chasing it from that point forward, and it's just because they didn't understand, and and no one's told them any different. So. That's it. And you just start tracking that deviation. But um, that cold board data, the first shot is so important. And and we need to make sure our fundamentals are, it's a perfectly placed shot. We need to document that too. Obviously, if I pull it, I feel, um, you know, when I call the shot down there, um, when I pull that trigger, if I see the reticle move off of center at all, when I'm shooting a cold bore, I'm going to document that. And I'm going to put, you know, I pulled it quarter inch to the right. That was on me. Maybe I flinched or pushed or something, you know, jerked the trigger just a bit. Well, that's not a good cold bore. I need to come back tomorrow and do it again. But I need to do it when it's snowing. I need to do it when it's raining. I need to do it at 100 degrees. I need to do it all the time. That's That's when you really become in tune with your first shot. I mean, and realistically what, as a hunter, uh, there's not a more important shot uh, when you're in the field, right? Yes, sir. That's, that's what we're hoping for every time we go out, right? One and done. Yes, sir. I'm down, you know, with that one shot. So that's the reason that I want to bring that up, right? Is understanding that um, a lot of people, and I'm making an assumption, don't even realize that, you know, there's an effect on that. And and that, you know, that drastic, right? You For me, you know, we're tuning up and we're at the range, you know, April to call it June, July. Um, if we're rifle hunting and we have a, you know, hunt planned out of state or in Northern California for, you know, October, November, there's a big difference there, right? We're, we're yeah. higher in altitude. It's colder weather. Uh, huge thing, man. Huge. That's it. Yeah, so, exactly. And and I think you could get DAs at your range in South California when it's 110 degrees outside, you can get real close to the higher altitude that you're going to up in the north when it's colder because your DAs are going to be so high when it's 110 degrees, your density altitude. Right. It's like right. you're in the altitude, you know. It's really but cool. understanding all that, understanding that that is even information that we should be gathering. Right, <laughs> that's right. something altogether different, man. Yeah, I hear you. It's a, it, you know, it's it's kind of life changing too, man. It's it's just like when you got into bow hunting or people get into this new art. It's and these are arts, you know, and and um, I want to keep it alive. I want people to get fired up, and, and just like you want to keep sharing your archery and the things you love. 
good. And we've got to keep our youth involved for sure. Oh man, that's, that's a big deal. So you, you just parlayed us into that, man. So <laughs> you've heard it, right? Conservation yeah. quick, the future of hunting, a uh, one to two minute spiel, man. Um, it's yours. Go that's for it, it, man. It's, it's all about, uh, it's our responsibility to do it right. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing this to feed our families. We're doing it for the right reason. We need to stick together in this. I mean, really, we're in a, we're probably facing kind of a little war here with this. Everybody's against us, you know, um, politically. And, uh, it's, it's becoming tougher. So, um, we've got to do it right when we do this and, uh, we feed our families and we need to educate our youth and get our family involved. There's nothing more beautiful than I mean, I'm one blessed dude. I hunt with my wife and kids. And, um, and then when I'm instructing in a class, my wife's right there. I mean, it's just super cool. Uh, I can't even describe that in words, how cool it is. And then, um, when my kids are there in the, in the classes and they're, you know, I see, my oldest daughter over there teaching someone MOA and mill or my son, or, you know, it's just something to be super proud of. So it's, it's, this is our responsibility, you know, to keep passing the torch, just like it was passed to us, you know, because we didn't invent this stuff. Somebody taught us. So now it's our responsibility to teach others. And that's it, man. Even in, even in the face of that adversity, man. Oh, it, it, especially in the face of the, the adversary, uh, adversity. Yep. Well, we're we pushing can. some time here, man. Yeah. And, sir. uh, I appreciate your time greatly. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to uh, make this happen and get on. I know you're quite some time ahead of me there. Um, So anything that we missed, man, that you want to get out there? Any last words? No, man, it's it's been a true pleasure. Um, I appreciate what you're doing, the message you're putting out there, and, and the message your folks are putting out there, too, the folks you're having on. Really enjoyed listening to them, uh, listening to them, and uh, inspiring you know it's good there's a lot of great people out there and we need to keep hearing those stories man it's good we'll keep them coming as long as they keep answering the phone when i call right on man so if folks want to get a hold of dr long range man how do they do that sure uh so instagram we're on instagram um facebook um under d period r period long range concepts um our email uh, dr long range concepts at at gmail.com and the website you can google uh, dr long range concepts and find us um we try to be extremely fast with um getting back to folks and um in, unless we're on the range obviously if we're on a weekend on the range bear with us because we are definitely devoted to those students and we're not texting and checking our messages, you know, until that evening, but, um, that's good stuff, man. Uh, we hope to keep doing this for a long, a long period of time. We love it and, uh, love meeting new people and life is good, brother. Good deal, man. And that quote, man, I'm going to, that's going to ring with me. So I, I looked it up. It's fear the man who has but one gun and knows how to use it. Who said folks, it? that is Ron. Uh, you know, I couldn't find that, but that is Ron White, folks. So watch it.
<laughs> Good deal, man. I appreciate your time uh, greatly, and I'm I'm glad we got to share this time and get some of this long range stuff out there, man. I love for sure. it. Yeah, for sure. If you need anything from me, you you've got my text, brother. Anytime, text me. Yes, and sir. if you get Thank you. down to this area, definitely let me know, and we'll get you to the range. It'd be awesome. Nice. Thank you very much. You bet. Guys, jump on social. Give DR Long Range Concepts a follow. Jump on westerncontours.com. Go to the giveaway page in your email address and get entered to win the DR Long Range Western Contours giveaway prize package. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. We spend a lot of time preparing for our hunts, and how we fuel our efforts is key. Head over to ValleyToPeakNutrition.com, helping you perform optimally in the backcountry. The purpose of Valley to Peak is to provide sound nutritional information supported by science to help you prepare and perform optimally in the backcountry. There's no secret. This is done through education, coaching, and programming based on personal goals and preferences. Head over to ValleyToPeakNutrition.com or catch them on Instagram at V2P Nutrition.